Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newham, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. Just like our human bodies have a blood circulating system where the blood travels from the heart through arteries to the body, then back from the body to the heart through veins, there is also something called the lymphatic system. The lymph vessels, L-Y-M-P-H, are tinier and more fragile than, say, arteries, but they are still important. The lymphatic system scoops up excess fluid from the body and mobilizes it back to the heart, but makes pit stops at what are called lymph nodes. These are part of the body's immune system, filtering and catching problematic materials and cells, but the lymphatic system also helps regulate how much fluid remains in various parts of our body. Too much fluid and we get swelling of that body part, or what's called edema. And if there's a malfunction in that lymphatic system, whether due to a natural problem or due to some injury or surgical intervention which removed lymph nodes or otherwise interrupted regular flow of lymph fluid, then something called lymphedema can develop. It may result in a body part such as an arm or a leg always being swollen with many secondary problems occurring as a result. Yes, lymphedema can be a significant affliction and there is really a lack of awareness in the public sector and even the medical sector, frankly, about this difficult to treat problem. Many wise people have tried hard to come up with effective solutions with varying degrees of success. But here is where the surprise comes in. Most people don't realize that a plastic surgeon may actually be able to surgically intervene and help the situation in some cases. Who knew, you might say? With us today, we have Dr. James Butterworth, a professor of plastic surgery at Kansas University Medical Center, to explain all about what can be done for this tricky problem that impacts roughly one in every thousand. Hear what he has to say. I am pleased that today we have Dr. James Butterworth to discuss our topic about lymphedema, an important issue. And Dr. Butterworth is professor of plastic surgery at KU Medical Center, Kansas University Medical Center, and he is the program director of the residency program. And of course, residents are those uh, doctors who are physicians, but they're in training for specialization, and in particular, in this situation, it's uh, to become plastic surgeons. Um, Welcome, Dr. Butterworth. James, thank you. How are thank you? you for having me. Oh, I'm oh. doing great. I'm doing Good. great. So it's, it's an honor to be on the show. Excellent. And there was also a recent hospital uh, certification that KU Medical Center won. And, and could you tell us what that is? Yeah. So the University of Kansas Medical Center is a collective amongst um, 
those of us that treat lymphedema here at, at KU in plastic surgery, breast surgery, and uh, vascular medicine, as well as all of our ancillary group and lymphedema specialists, physical therapists, and nurses that are certified uh, lymphedema specialists, um, put in the work and, and applied for and received uh, to be a, a center of excellence in the LEARN program, which is the lymphedema education and research network. And uh, we received a comprehensive cancer center of excellence. Um, wow. There's not that many places that have been anointed that, and we're very proud of, of the achievements in terms of the work that we put in and ultimately yeah. you know, yeah. getting that title. As you should be, that's pretty cool. All right, well, would you tell us a little bit about you, just briefly, where you're from and uh, where you trained, and what is the nature of your current practice? Yeah, so I am a practicing plastic surgeon, and as you mentioned, I'm also the uh, residency program director, so I'm in charge of their training, with obviously the help of all of my partners and even some community folks like yourself that, uh, hey, that you lend, lend a hand. And I got into plastic surgery to really do a, a subspecialized form of it called microsurgery, and that was what made me really fall in love uh, with plastic surgery uh, when I was going through my general surgery training. And so I guess to go further back, I was, I was born and raised in Iowa and then uh, ultimately matriculated to medical school in Ireland, so cool. uh, where I was in Dublin for a number of years, and then came back to do my general surgery training at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, followed by uh, my plastic surgery training up there. And then I had one final year of training at UT Houston, the MD Anderson Cancer Center, uh, which was focused on doing microsurgery. And it was there that I honed my skills at doing autologous tissue breast reconstruction, where you uh, transfer parts of the body in the form of fat and skin to reconstruct breasts after mastectomies, um, as well as uh, reconstruct a variety of different defects that are, are a result of, of cancer surgeries. Would you uh, just explain for the listeners what microsurgery is? Yeah, uh, microsurgery is where we take um, a area of tissue uh, from a, one's body and you raise that up in a way that you preserve the uh, artery in the vein that supply the blood to that tissue. And then in order to transfer it to the area that you need it to go, um, you end up disconnecting the artery in the vein and then you have to sew that into an artery vein in the area that needs to be reconstructed. Um, and to do that, typically we use an operating microscope because the vessels mm -hmm. that we use are, are usually less than four millimeters, often less than three. So tiny. So, so they're pretty small, yeah. yeah. And so one of the most common cases that we use that for is a, an operation called a DIEP or a deep inferior epigastric artery perforator flap where we take the fat and the skin from the lower part of the abdomen or the belly and we you know, dissect that out with the blood vessels and then we move that up to the chest to reconstruct a breast after a breast has been removed as a result of um, a cancer operation called a mastectomy. Yeah, it's just amazing what we can do now. I just love that. Yeah, they're wonderful operations, and we end yeah. up with really happy patients. And, you know, I think it is obviously a, a marriage of innovation, honed surgical experience, but also technology, you know. And without yeah. the technology, we wouldn't be able to do a lot of, a lot of those types of operations. And so yeah. 
you know, 40 years ago they were developing the microscopes to be able to do it. And then, as, as you can recall, in the late 90s was sort of the advent of microvascular breast reconstruction. And now that's become very common practice at, at many centers. Um, but lymphedema surgery is, is certainly something that's been newer. And uh, some of the early work was being done before 2011, but it was really starting to gain speed by a few people, and one of which was a, a few of my mentors down at MD Anderson, David Chang, who's now the chair at the University of Chicago, Roman Skaraki, who's on staff and uh, really affiliated with the Ohio State Cancer Center. Um, and they started doing um, some types of lymphedema surgery that I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. Yeah, and, absolutely. And well, let's actually start with what lymphedema means. What is it and what are the symptoms typically? Yeah, so lymphedema is the swelling of a, of a limb, typically one, but it can be multiple depending on the reason why it happens, as a result of an obstruction or a, a lack of flow of the lymphatic fluid from that particular limb or from that particular area. And so the lymphatic system is something inherent to, that everybody has that collects fluid as well as, as blood cells, a variety of different blood cells within the body and inflammatory markers, and transports them back centrally to be redistributed amongst the body. And it usually kind of mirrors the venous system as we think about blood flowing back from one area of the body to the heart. The lymphatic system does something very similar, but it goes through tissues and ultimately flows into lymph nodes. And I think most mm -hmm. people have probably heard of lymph nodes either because of having swelling of them when they have a tonsillitis or something yeah. like that, or you know having them enlarged as a result of developing cancer. But they have a normal function of sort of helping the immune system work. And so the lymphatic fluid flows from lymph node basin to lymph node basin and ultimately back into the central venous system into the heart and then it gets redistributed and somewhere along the line lymphedema results from that system not working uh, optimally in that in that part of the body mm -hmm. and then in addition to swelling you know when the swelling's going on for such a long time what other symptoms can those patients start to have like skin breakdown and you know, healing issues, infection, that kind of thing. All of those things. And, and even before the swelling happens, oftentimes what somebody may feel is an arm or a leg, whatever part is affected, becomes a little heavy. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes a little tight. Um, it tires out easier than their other arm or their leg. And then beyond that, one starts to see a noticeable difference in the size of the arm or the leg. Mm -hmm. Um, and so oftentimes the early symptoms of it are, are really heaviness, fatigue, um, you know, a feeling of it being tight. And then if it goes on unchecked or untreated, uh, then it can become, you know, considerably larger than the other, than the other limb and mm -hmm. to the point where ultimately you do get scarring and buildup of, of some of the, the tissue underneath the skin that causes the skin to harden and even break down and, and develop wound healing problems. And in the midst of all of that, having untreated lymphedema puts one at a risk of developing an infection called a cellulitis or mm -hmm. infection of the, of the fat that's underneath the skin. Mm -hmm. And that can be pretty problematic because it's, it's more difficult to treat because of the fact that the lymphatic system in the limb is not working as well. Mm -hmm. 
Makes sense. And now we have a great explanation of what lymphedema is and some of the symptoms, but why can it occur? How can it occur? What can cause it? Yeah, so the most common cause in our country and most um, developed nations is as a result of cancer treatment. And uh, usually that comes from either removal of a lymph node uh, basin or radiation to a lymph node basin or, or both. As is the most common cause in the United States for it, it's, it's typically related to breast cancer care. Mm -hmm. And so as a part of some of the journeys that breast cancer patients have to go through as a, as a part of their operation when a mastectomy or a lumpectomy is performed, usually the lymph nodes in that armpit need to be uh, sampled to see if there's cancer that has traveled to the lymph nodes that drain the breast. And if that's the case, then oftentimes the remaining lymph nodes in that area need to be removed and the area needs to be radiated. Now, the reasons to do some of these things and not do some of these things are, are very nuanced mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and evolving, right? As, as you and I both know, yes. uh, the way that breast cancer is being treated now compared to when we were training is, is vastly different. Oh, absolutely. Why one person gets the, all of their lymph nodes removed and another does not is based on the type of cancer and, and the biology and all mm -hmm. those sort of things. So after that happens, if the lymph nodes are removed from the armpit or the axilla, as we say in medicine, then what happens is the lymphatic fluid that would flow up the arm normally into those lymph nodes are hitting an obstruction or a roadblock. Right. And that can happen again after gynecological malignancies where lymph nodes have to be removed from the groin and you can get that in the leg or from melanomas where again lymph nodes have to be removed. Right. The most common cause of lymphedema in the world though still is a parasitic infection called filariasis mm -hmm. uh, which we see mostly in developing nations and, and very, very rarely in the United States. Yeah. Well what would you consider the initial management uh, or treatment of lymphedema before considering something surgical? Still the gold standard for treatment of lymphedema is conservative management. Mm -hmm. So non-surgical ideally? So it is non-surgical right and so ideally the treatment for it is early detection, education, and early intervention. And we have a group at KU through our breast surgery group that has done great research on a protocol for early intervention in which all breast cancer patients are screened for it and are tested for it before going into surgery. But then especially high-risk yeah. patients, those that have undergone lymph node removals, sure. radiation, and then a particular type of chemotherapy called Taxol or a Taxane-based therapy puts one at risk as well, are followed very closely to see if there's any increase in swelling or you can use a variety of different diagnosis measures in yeah. order to figure that out. And if it seems as though somebody's starting to develop lymphedema, then getting them back in re-educating them on, on what the important steps are for maintaining a healthy limb, trying to avoid injuries, things along those lines. And then starting with early compression and or wrapping has been shown to be able to stave off the development of more advanced lymphedema or even reverse some of the early signs of it. Well, that's great. And that's great that you're screening everybody for that. I think that's wonderful. Uh, so you can do some compression, some wrapping to try to control uh, the swelling, and uh, massage too, would that be helpful? Yeah, yeah, so manual lymphatic drainage for sure is what 
you're referring to, which yeah. is thought of as a lymphedema massage. You tried to work that fluid back up. That's exactly right. And that is very helpful and one that typically starts with a trained lymphedema specialist, but ultimately, as mentioned before, a huge part of this process is education. And so a lot of patients are able to do that at home on a daily basis. There are other things that some people find that to be very useful, like pneumatic pumps that sort of squeeze the fluid back. Uh-huh. And in a sense, a massage as well. Um, and then a variety of different regimens with regards to the different wrapping, whether that's uh, a compression sleeve during the day or a more sophisticated uh, compression type garment at night versus uh, low stretch wraps. Yeah. Well, it, and sometimes conservative management is not enough and surgery has to be considered. And I think people might not normally think of plastic surgery as providing some surgical solutions for this problem, but it certainly can make a difference. Could you explain uh, the options for surgical treatment and what the goals are of those treatments? Yeah, so from a surgical standpoint, we think about the different options in kind of two larger headings. One is debulking or trying to reduce the size and another is a physiologic operation or trying to offload the fluid. Debulking uh, has been done in a couple of different ways. One through direct excision where we remove a lot of the excess tissue and scar as we had mentioned before as well as some of the skin. Yeah. So skin and fat. You're exactly and typically we reserve that now for advanced lymphedema. So patients that have had it mm -hmm. for a long time and it's gone untreated and ultimately the skin changes are so chronic that there's no there's really no way to, to come back from that. And everything's gotten kind of overgrown and it's just sometimes lapping over itself. It gets so enlarged. Lapping over like and it's just hard and yeah. firm and uncomfortable and, and honestly in a lot of those cases they are a, a cancer risk long term uh, as well yeah. for development of sarcoma. Uh -huh. But we don't see nearly as much of that anymore because mm -hmm. of, you know, increasing education and what have yeah, you. Early intervention. Exactly. And, uh, and so a more commonly used debulking method is, is through liposuction. And that has mm -hmm. been something that has been uh, championed by a, a physician by the name of Bjornsson over in Sweden for over 30 years now. And he's got long-term results with aggressive liposuction on some of these limbs and then very religious compression for a long period of time. Isn't that funny? You just wouldn't think of liposuction as, you know, a potential solution for this very difficult problem. Right, exactly. And it, and it works well. It really does work well. It does a very good job of, of very aggressively reducing the size by removing a lot of the buildup of that fibro fatty tissue that has been developing over time. Mm -hmm. Now it does take a very high level of compliance for patients to be able to keep that down and not backslide. You know, if you go off of your compression yeah. or what have you, it is gonna probably start to fill back up. Then the physiologic operations that we do are one of two things, either taking lymph nodes from another area of the body with blood vessels attached to them and then transplanting them into the affected limb and that's called a vascularized lymph node transfer. So the vascularized lymph node transfer, you're taking attached blood vessels with it so that under the microscope you can hook those blood vessels up to blood vessels that are in the area where it's going to have its new home, so to speak. Right. And so that's how you keep it alive, basically. You're getting new blood supply by that um, connection or what we call anastomosis. That's right, yeah. So if you were just to take lymph nodes 
without a blood supply and place them in somewhere, they would not survive and then they would not be able to do the job that we hope that they're going to do. But if you take them with the blood supply, then they survive. And then hopefully over the course of time, often it takes somewhere between a year and 18 months, uh, we think that they can develop new lymphatic channels that go out and connect with the affected limb, which is something we call lymphangiogenesis. So that's theoretically what happens anyways. And where do you typically like to get those, what we'll call donor lymph nodes from? Where do you harvest them from? Yeah, they've been described from a number of different places. You can take them from the groin, you can take them from the other armpit, you can take them from the neck. Um, one of the common places that we actually take them from now is from inside the abdomen off of a tissue called the omentum, which houses mm-hmm. a number of lymph nodes that run along the bottom of the stomach. A few spare ones there. Yeah, there's a yeah, couple, couple, <laughs> couple here and there. And so the thing that's nice about that is that we don't know of any chances of developing lymphedema as a result of taking those lymph nodes. And so there's yeah, that would be the worry. Reduced uh, morbidity with regards to the possible development of lymphedema. Yeah. You don't want to create a new problem. So. Right. Right. Exactly. And then you were telling us the other operation. So the other operation is a lymphovenous bypass where we take a really high-powered microscope and then in somebody who has established lymphedema uh, we inject some dye in between their fingers let's say it's an arm and trace out some lymphatic channels uh, ultimately make small incisions over where those lymphatic channels are dissect down under this high-powered microscope and find the lymphatic channels find a neighboring vein and sow the lymphatic into the vein and that way it bypasses that fluid Mm -hmm. into the venous system in the limb as opposed to it getting obstructed more upstream where the lymph nodes were removed. The size of the vessels are typically less than a millimeter, sometimes less than 0.5 millimeters in diameter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and very small. The suture that we end up using is, is barely visible to the naked eye at, at all. Smaller than a hair. It is, and, but it, it tends to work fairly well. And now what we've been doing even more recently is at the time of lymph node removals, especially in breast cancer uh, patients, is to try and find some of those lymphatics uh, that drain the arm and hook them up into a vein at the time of the lymph node removal to try and prevent lymphedema from from occurring. Yeah, proactive, yeah. Yeah, exactly, because we know that the best way to really treat lymphedema is to prevent lymphedema. Well, I'm curious, you know, in these physiologic procedures, it takes a while for results to be seen, but there may be some patients who are left with irregular shape to the limb and they don't like the cosmetic appearance of it. How would you advise someone who comes to you and they've had a successful lymph node transfer or a successful shunting procedure, a reconnection, and they say, hey, could you do something to recontour my arm so it looks better? How much risk is there and what would you say to that person? Yeah, so we do do liposuction after these physiologic operations in order to try and debulk an arm. And if somebody's had lymphedema for a long period of time, even though the physiologic operations tend to work well, they often don't completely reduce the size of the arm. Mm -hmm. And so it really depends on what is there and what we think that we can accomplish with it. Now, one of the things that I tell patients is that these surgical options are, are not a cure. And what we cannot do is create a situation in which that arm is gonna look or act 
like the normal arm or the, the other limb. That's a good point. But what we can do is to try and, and continue to work on it and ultimately intervene in a way that it can make things more reasonable from a, a day-to-day life and improve the quality of life. Uh, you know, as a plastic surgeon yourself, Regina, we know that everything that we do in plastic surgery, even if it's not cosmetic surgery, we do it with an aesthetic eye. Absolutely. So obviously we want to try and optimize that, but also it's important to remind people of what we can and can't accomplish with these operations and what the expectations can be. And are there expected revisions that you'll advise patients about uh, or even planned staged surgeries? So we'll do this first and then we'll do that. What do you typically find? Yeah, so I usually talk with patients about all of those options, and then we decide on what is best, you know, what we think is going to work for best for them at that time. But recognizing that, you know, the bypasses, the lymph node transfers, the liposuction would not all be performed in the same operation. Mm-hmm. We can sometimes perform two out of the three, but, but rarely, if ever, all three. And so it is sometimes necessary to stage them. And often what we would do is... is determine what the priorities are, determine you know, what the compliance is going to be, go about doing what we think is going to have the most impact first, and then potentially going back and doing other operations. Or it could be that we do a, an operation or a set of operations and wait usually about a year before we'll consider you know, doing another one, and they're doing really well, and they, they don't want to do another operation. And so we just kind of sit on the sidelines until something comes up that we need to. If we can intervene early enough, it may be that a patient does not need to do ongoing compression and conservative management. Patients that have had it for a while, that's not a very reasonable expectation. At least that's what I tell patients. And oftentimes what it can do though is help them manage it long term and keep it at at something that's a little bit more reasonable. Well, it's it's great to know what is available now, and uh, that really gives some patients who suffer with this uh, some hope. Do you have any patient success stories you might be able to share with the listeners here? People always love a good story. Anybody who has struggled with this, and you or your department were able to help them? Yeah, I, you know, I do a fair bit of these operations, and and in most people, we get some some level of improvement, some more than others, and. Um, you know, it's been wonderful to be able to see some people go off of, of wearing their sleeves. Again, those are typically pretty early, but uh, to be able to liberate themselves from ongoing daily management, though everybody has to be certainly conscientious of, of being a bit protective and understand uh, ongoing risks and signs of there being a problem. One patient that I had had lymphedema for quite a while, and so again, to think that we were going to get to where that arm was going to act or behave like a normal arm was was not something that we really expected to be able to happen. But she had, for a number of years, was development of infections on almost a monthly basis. Oh, how terrible. Yeah, recurring recurrent hospitalizations with IV antibiotics yeah, and things gosh. like that. And so we... Quality of life, just terrible. Very much so, very much so. And so we did a combination of uh, bypasses and then ultimately liposuction on her and I can't remember exactly, but it was about four years between uh, episodes of infections after that. So having gone from 10 to 12 
infections per year to having none for about four years. And then she ended up having one, uh, which is the only one that I've known about in, in seven. But, you know, you hear something like that or you see something like that, it would definitely take that as a pretty substantial win. How does she feel about it? You know, she feels great. Uh, I was a little disappointed, obviously, that she even got the one, uh, but she was ecstatic, yeah. you know, that not that she got another infection. No, but, that her life was improved. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, from that standpoint, I would say that that was definitely a success story. Yeah, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Uh, and, and congratulations to her, too. As you think about this, is there anything in the future that you see on the horizon that might be exciting for lymphedema treatment or anything that you'd love to see that maybe we don't even have the technology for now? You know, I, I think that there's a number of different centers that are, are trying a variety of different things, you know, in terms of real basic science stuff and drug development. And they're still working on it. You know, there was uh, a few different things not to get into, like, you know, hardcore science or what have you. But I know that there's some work going on with VEGF, like a, a vascular endothelial growth factor. And there's, you know, some ups and downs with some of these drugs, but there's some hope. Uh, that we may be able to find something that is going to help in the process of mitigating developmental lymphedema. I think that things like doing these immediate lymphatic reconstructions or where we hook up the lymphatics yes. at the time of, of the operations. Yeah. Right, where you have the opportunity, yeah. Yeah, and in conjunction with indications for actually you know, doing full removal of the armpit lymph nodes and things like that, which are which are decreasing based on yeah. large trials that are going on yeah. in the breast cancer so world. Toning that down a little would be helpful. It, yeah, exactly. And I, I think that we're hoping to see less and less of it. And then also, you know, developing some of these things to really help mitigate the development of lymphedema on the front end to reduce the number of patients that we're actually treating for established lymphedema on the back end yeah. is, is I think where we're hoping to land at least in the next five to 10 years while we're waiting for you know the development in the labs, potentially a, a medication or something like that that's gonna help us uh, treat it without having to do surgical yeah, intervention. that'd be great, gosh. Well, so much enlightening information. Thank you so much. I wonder if you have any final uh, comments or words for the listeners about lymphedema, whether it's about identification or prevention or just words of encouragement for those who are plagued with it. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the biggest issues that we still have out there is a lack of knowledge and a lack of access to people that treat it. And even amongst the medical community, you know, primary care physicians and internists often don't know what we've been able to develop in terms of preventative programs as well as treatment options, both in the form of conservative management as well as surgical intervention. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that we need to continue to do is to educate our medical colleagues and, and educate the public as to mm -hmm. what's out there. And then I would just encourage patients who are dealing with it to advocate for themselves and try to reach out uh, through their medical providers or, or even on their own to find people that can help. Um, and this day and age where there is so many different online groups and social media groups and you know the breast cancer network is so huge with patients that are more than willing to drop everything and help a sister in arms who is yes. going through breast cancer treatment. 
just talk to people and, and try to figure out what your options are. And then there are a growing number of us out there that are trying to you know, push the needle forward and, and treat these you know, often difficult conditions to, to yeah. manage. Wise words. Well, Dr. James Butterworth, thank you so much for spending a little time with us and educating everyone. I think this is such helpful information and really very important, so thank you. Well, it's always a pleasure, Dr. Newhan. Thank you so much for having me on. You bet. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something, too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.